hopefully get used to it. I'm getting used to it. And uh, not only do we have a new slot this week going forward, we also have a new sponsor. I want to welcome Seasons Supermarkets as the sponsor of Spin Class. Welcome to Spin Class. Welcome to the Nachum Siegel Network. Seasons Supermarkets located in Kew Gardens Hills at 6818 Main Street. 1066 Wilmot Road in Scarsdale, New York, and on the west side at 661 Amsterdam Avenue. The Lawrence Superstore is under renovation, but until then, Seasons makes deliveries all day to the five towns. So call in your order, 516-295-3300. Again, 516-295-3300. Or you can email them to lawrenceorders at seasonsny.com. And... If you happen to find yourself in Central Queens in Kew Gardens Hills or any other any other place within Central Queens, stop by tonight for Mechis Cholent in Kew Gardens Hills. They are open until midnight. And now to politics. We've got Duke here. We've got Judith here. And we are going to jump into politics. This was a big day in American government. And you might ask why. Well, we had one of those unusual phenomenons of all the living presidents sitting in the same place and they were there to mark the opening of the george w bush presidential library and policy center on the campus of southern methodist university in texas and it's one of those things that we celebrate about america we the former presidents the current president they get together and they celebrate the institution of the presidency. We don't have a monarchy, obviously. We got rid of that back in the 1770s. Good thing we did. But we have a presidency. And we celebrate that presidency no matter who the president are, is, was. You might not have liked them. You might like them. You might be a supporter. You might not be a supporter. But we celebrate that institution. And it's important that we think of that institution as something that contributes value to our political discourse. And we think about former presidents and what they've, what they've achieved, what they had to deal with is really is a very important thing. So we study their presidency. And if you've never been to a presidential library, you should definitely go to one or more, as many as you can, because there's a lot there to, to think about and to contemplate over the four or eight years, or sometimes even shorter, unfortunately, of a presidential term. And obviously, the George W. Bush, as in Bush 43, President Bush 41 was also there today. But Bush 43 presidency was heavy on 9-11, heavy on the Iraq War. These conflicts still go on. We're still in Afghanistan. We're to a much, much lesser degree still in Iraq. But these uh, still linger, and thinking about that is uh, still important, and contemplating that is still important, and talking about some of the things that Bush 43, George W. Bush, did for this country, and obviously there's still fodder for debate, and there continues to be debate. So I want to just, in the opening statement, kind of point out one little thing, which seems to be this fight or this tussle or the tug-of-war of the tug of war of the over the Bush legacy and who 
seems to be who seems to be well criticizing I guess that legacy and you see some very interesting criticism of of Bush not coming from the current quarters that you would think but coming from the right and uh, just want to read a statement that I saw from Eric Erickson at redstate.com a prominent conservative blogger until the GOP is willing to say that maybe, just maybe, TARP, No Child Left Behind, Big Government Conservatism, Medicare Part D, the General Motors bailout, the handling of Katrina, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, are not worth defending, the GOP cannot move on. So basically, Erickson is saying that the entire Bush presidency, that domestic piece of the Bush presidency, is kind of, well, we have to repudiate it. The GOP can't move on. The GOP is having all these problems because of that Bush presidency and and because of that legacy. And until those are repudiated, the party can't move on. Look, I don't know. There's there's good stuff in all of these. There's there's things there's room for debate in all of these things. But uh, clearly the legacy is right now being attacked, not from the right, but being attacked. I mean, not just from the left, but as it always was, but also being attacked from the right. And. The, I think I want to point out one other thing before we go to our first guest and just, you know, give you the rundown of who the guests are. We got Bill Hammond from the Daily News coming on, talking about Albany politics. We got an interesting focus and spotlight tonight on East Ramapo. The East Ramapo School District out there, which is a source of controversy with a large majority of private school students versus a small minor, a smaller minority of public school students. Certainly an anomaly of the amongst the uh, amongst the school districts out there, and so we're going to set the table with that with uh, Aaron Trudler from Paul, Rever- Paul Revere Public Relations, and we're also going to talk to Assemblyman Ken Zimbrowski from out there, and uh, we are going to also talk later to blogger Jacob Cornblue, who had an interesting week on a lot of fronts, is going to update us on his. Uh, for, on his blog about the New York mayor race. But I want to jump in first to uh, Bill Hammond. And uh, Bill writes a column on a regular basis for the uh, Daily News. And he can be found there also occasionally on a blog, but generally as a columnist. But he also uncovers some of the particularly interesting stuff going on in Albany. And uh, Bill is uh, certainly a keen observer of the political scene. Bill, welcome to Spin Class. Bill, can you hear me? Uh, yeah, I can hear you. Okay, great. So uh, let's let's talk about uh, let's talk about what's going on in Albany. Uh, you know, we're in the middle of scandal. We got uh, all kinds of uh, different things going on with vis-a-vis the second floor, meaning the governor. He seems to be indecisive on a number of issues, uh, such as hydrofracking and uh, local government issues with uh, mandates and what to do. We passed an on-time budget, but a lot of people are critical of the budget. So uh, has the veneer or the Teflon kind of worn away on uh, Andrew Cuomo? Yeah, I think that's kind of hard to deny that uh, he had a, a, a kind of extended honeymoon where uh, where he was getting a lot of what he wanted done, and the legislature was reluctant. Members of both parties were reluctant to attack him because of his overwhelming popularity. And, uh, yeah, I think that's a, a good way to put it, is Teflon has started to wear away. Um, and he also does seem 
very uncharacteristically indecisive and a little bit unclear about what his big priorities are going to be. I mean, if you listen to his speech in January, you know, passing his women's agenda was going to be the biggest deal. Um, now it seems like maybe anti-corruption stuff is going to be the biggest deal. Um, and then, as you mentioned, he's got this uh, uh, agenda relating to helping municipal governments deal with a fiscal crisis. Um, there are two or three other issues that have been kind of perking along, and it, and you really, it, it, it does feel a little unclear which way the session is going. So talk for a second about, I think all the reporters out there are talking about the secrecy of the Cuomo administration, as well as the lack of candor on certain issues, right? You wrote about the fact that they were spending, I'll let you present it, but they were spending ads that about jobs and job creation and taxes in, in New York, and they're essentially misleading. Well, what I, uh, I um, probably a lot of your listeners have seen these ads. They're, they're supposed to be about attracting businesses to locate in New York or encouraging businesses to open in New York. And the latest one of these ads hits pretty hard on the idea that New York State is cutting taxes and uh, lowering the burden on businesses, uh, trying to live down our reputation as the vampire state, which is one reason why we have trouble creating jobs in New York. And The vampire what state. I, you know, what I reacted to in that ad was, you know, I sort of share the idea that cutting taxes or at least keeping them as low as possible would be a good thing for the economy, but I don't feel like that's what the governor has actually done. Um, it's what he promised to do. He took office on a, on a pledge of no new taxes, but uh, a couple of times now he has um, stopped taxes from expiring when they were supposed to expire. These temporary taxes on the wealthy, another temporary tax on energy, they were both supposed to expire, and he's taken proactive steps to extend those, to keep those revenues flowing. And the result has been a net increase during his tenure in the, uh, the tax revenue that the state gets. And so I felt like, you know, given that record, I thought it was disingenuous of him to go on the air with ads claiming credit for cutting taxes. Who's paying, cut, for, he's, who's he paying has, for these ads, Bill? He's cut some taxes. As he's, he, can, he can accurately say, well, I've cut this tax on business and I've, I've lowered middle-class tax rates. But in this, at the same time as he was doing that, he was raising taxes on other people for a net increase. So, Bill, two questions for you. And we're here with Bill Hammond from the Daily News, columnist, the longtime Albany Observer. Bill, how long have you been in Albany for? Covering? Uh, well, for various papers since 1998. Okay, so you've seen a, you've seen a lot. Yeah. Uh, just uh, who? Number one, who's paying for these ads, and why are they? They're not running nationally, so why are they running so many of them in New York? I mean, I'm watching uh, CNBC or MSNBC, uh, CNN, and I'm seeing you know, three or four per half hour of well, these ads. Well, the ads that I'm talking about were, in fact. Um, produced and paid for by the Empire State Development Corporation. It's the, the state agency that's in charge of business development. Um, they, they did air nationally. Um, as I was told, about half of them are airing nationally and half of them are being aired on stations based in New York. It does seem to me that they've been running more frequently 
than I'm used to seeing them in the past. I'm told by the Coleman administration to know um, they're spending about the same amount on this round of ads as they did on two previous rounds of ads. But I, I know I've seen it. I've seen them multiple times just in my own TV viewing. And they're pretty good. I have to say they're yeah you know, they're certainly energetic and they catch they catch your attention. There's no question. Uh, if if all that they tout is actually true, I think New York sounds like a pretty good place to do business. But I think. It, most surveys out there or independent studies rank New York very low on the uh, on the business climate scale. Is that accurate? Well, uh, in the, there's the Tax Foundation, which is uh, an, a group that actually believes in lowering taxes, so they, they have an agenda. But they do an annual survey of all the states, and they rate them in different categories. And New York rated last in their latest report for business tax climate and also um, last in their climate for overall state and local taxes. So, yeah, and on those, on those objective measures, um, New York has an, a problem with taxes, and it's, it's a drag on the economy, and it's a, it's a discouragement to business locating here. Bill, talk for a second about the corruption issue. And I know we, we've, we've talked for it, talked about it a couple times on the show and I don't want people to feel like we can't get away from it but you wrote a piece a couple weeks ago or it could have been recently just uh, that the big apple is really rotten and has the corruption ever been this bad in the the climate of of corruption well I got to say I've I've having been here since 1998 I feel like I've been watching kind of a continuous wave you know um, the, the part of what uh, part of why there's been such a reaction to the arrests um, earlier this month of two members of the state legislature and a bunch of other people, I think part of the reaction is that it felt like there was a lull. It felt like whether whether because you had a new governor or because, you know, the U.S. attorney had been stinging so many politicians and charging so many politicians, or because they passed a new ethics law, whatever the reason, it felt like things had calmed down. And then all of a sudden you get a little explosion of arrest. Um, I can't say that it's worse than it's ever been because, you know, you can always roll back the tape and find an, another time when, you know, you had a governor resigning or a controller resigning or a Senate majority leader getting indicted. It's It's been nonstop ever since I've gotten here. And you pointed out the fact that it's predominantly or at least it's uh, it's predominantly New York City politicians uh, getting yeah I tried to count up all the politicians who'd gotten caught up in in scandals uh, either either accused of ethical violations or arrested for whatever reason and and it just jumped out at me that so many of them I, I don't have the numbers in front of me but it was way out of proportion you know New York City's roughly 40 45 percent of the population and the the number of politicians from New York City that were getting into legal trouble was way higher than that. Interesting. For a second, and I want to get to our last question. I don't. I we have to move on to our next uh, segment, but I want to just ask you directly about the upstate situation, the upstate economy. And when you think about when you think about New York State, you have you have a very large swath that is is more akin to a Midwestern economy, if, if you will, 
than than the downstate economy is. Yet we have a lot of the very burdensome regulations and uh, cost structure that you have in a state like New York, where the downstate is very wealthy. And talk, talk for a second. How how can the governor or how can the government allow upstate to to recover? I mean, upstate has been on a steady decline population wise and uh, manufacturing wise and wealth wise uh, for quite some time. And is it possible to rebound? Oh yeah, I, I mean, I got to think it's possible. I know, I know there is a group. It's called Unshackle Upstate, and its whole agenda is that you shouldn't apply the same uh, regulatory burden that makes sense for New York City. You should not apply it to Upstate. I, a part of me kind of reacts negatively to that idea that we should have two sets of laws for two different parts of the state. I, I feel like if, if, if a law doesn't make sense. For upstate, it probably doesn't make sense for New York City either. It's probably there for political reasons rather than for good policy reasons. Being that being said, it's very true that upstate New York has a very different economy. Large parts of it are rural. You know, there's a substantial dairy farming business upstate. There are um, there would be a gas drilling industry upstate if if the state would allow it to happen. Um, and large parts of it are suffering economically. Um, there are small towns. I live in an area that's relatively prosperous. The area right around Albany and Saratoga Springs is doing pretty well. But if you start driving west towards uh, Syracuse and Rochester and Buffalo, you come through towns that are, are very, very depressed, You know where the houses are falling down, and you wonder how people survive in them. Okay, well, Bill, thank you very much. I want to just uh, thank you again for, for coming on and giving us some of the insight into the Albany scene, and uh, hopefully we'll have you again uh, pretty soon in the future. It's my pleasure. Thank you. This is Spin Class. So we're talking politics here, presented by Season Supermarkets, and we're going to go into our next segment here. We have Aaron Trudler of Paul Revere Public Relations with us, and he is a Rockland-based uh, PR guru and uh, Aaron, welcome to Spin Class. Michael, thank you very much for having me. Glad to be here. So I, I'll tell you, I know a lot of people out there may have missed it. So I'm just going to set the stage out there. We've talked a little bit about it in the past on on the show, but there is this school district up in Rockland County, and uh, it's the Hudson Valley. It's not upstate uh, in the classical sense. So it should be uh, on a lot of people's uh, radar screen. And certainly listeners of this show know where Rockland County is. Uh, it's, got a va- it's got a very large majority of yeshiva students versus uh, public school students. And basically, New York Magazine took a look at this district and said that the Orthodox are gutting the schools uh, on their own behalf. And they are disadvantaging and killing the futures of immigrant children. I, I know I'm giving it a certain slant. But uh, that's what we do. I'm spinning. So, uh, Aaron, uh, tell, set the stage. What is the East Ramapo School District, and uh, what is uh, going on over there? All right. Let me give you listeners, like you said, a little bit of perspective on, on what's currently occurring, the demographics of the district, and kind of uh, discuss how we got to where we are today. Uh, as you mentioned, the, the East Ramapo School District is an extremely diverse district. It has a very unique demographic makeup. Uh, the, it's actually one of only several school districts in the entire state of New York where the number of students who attend private schools outnumber the number of students who attend public schools. Uh, more specifically, 
There are about 9,000 students uh, in the public school system in that district, and a whopping 20,000 or so that attend private schools, many of them obviously yeshivas. Um, the, the district is very unique in the sense that of the, of the 9,000 or so uh, students who attend the public schools, about 85% of them are black or Hispanic. There are only 7% of the public school students who are white. Uh, it, it's a staggering statistic, but one that really gives you a flavor of the minority uh, nature of that district. Um, you know, in terms of the school district itself, you have uh, the graduation rate. The graduation rate is uh, considerably lower than other neighboring districts. Uh, in 2011, uh, the graduation rate in East Ramapo was just 72%. Um, and, for example, to put in perspective, it was at uh, 92% in Ramapo Central School District, which is a neighboring district. So. It's, it's a very unique district. Um, a lot of the, uh, the numbers are attributable to the fact that the Orthodox community uh, in Rockland County, and specifically in the town of Ramapo, uh, have spiked. Uh, for example, over the past decade, uh, between the 2000 and the 2010 census, um, the town of Ramapo uh, population increased by over 16%, um, more than any of the other uh, four towns in the county of Rockland. Um, and even breaking the numbers down further, for example, uh, New Square, which is a, uh, a Hasidic uh, village, um, they saw an increase of 50%. The village of Kayser, which is another predominantly Hasidic district, uh, grew by 42%. So you have a very uh, unique population where the number of Orthodox uh, residents of the town of Ramapo are growing at a much, rapid, much more rapid rate than other people uh, in that district. Uh, and I think what's happening is, is as the Orthodox community gets more and more involved with the district on various levels, uh, there's been a tremendous amount of acrimony um, that has ensued. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, that's got us to where we are today. Where do you see... Where do you see a solution coming? I, I, I Let's just say I happen to live in a district also, uh, the Lawrence School District in Nassau County, where private school children outnumber public school children or students in, in this in this case, and I don't know that there's been the same amount. There has been acrimonies, no question. It's been in the papers. It's been out there, and you know maybe in a different, in a future segment, we'll we'll profile that situation a little bit. But I don't see the same type of situation where kind of this wholesale uh, war going on, uh, where you have a situation where the the board's in turmoil, and you have a you have a situation where they're they're literally canceling. If you read, if you believe what you read, they're literally gutting all the programs. They're they're getting rid of classes, and uh, and uh, people are, for what they say, they're you know, people who graduate from East Ramapo schools are no longer gonna be able to go to college. And I know that's yeah. extreme. So, uh, but but what you know, how, how did how did it get to this? Well, I think part of what happened uh, is that um, the, the you know, members of the Orthodox community took a renewed interest in, in the goings-on in the district. Obviously, they pay taxes in the district. Um, you know, they, they benefit from various uh, services that the school district provides to their children. And they, they decided, you know, a number of years ago, some members of the Orthodox community decided to run for the East Rampo School Board, and they were, uh, they were victorious at that, at that particular time. And since that time, there have been... Um, several other Orthodox members who have run for the school board. And I think what's, unfortunately what's happened is many folks have, have, have become very quick to criticize the Orthodox community for uh, essentially, for lack of a better term, taking over the school board. And I think what these critics fail to understand is that there was, 
you know, this wasn't a military coup. There was no hostile takeover. You know, the Orthodox members of the school board are there because they got more votes than the other candidates. Right. They're every and, every every resident's entitled to vote. Absolutely. Um, and and the truth of the matter is, is that uh, one of the most fundamental rights granted to to us by the United States Constitution is the right to vote. So if an individual or a group of individuals exercises that right and they go to the polls on election day. Why should they be criticized for that? No one deserves to be condemned for engaging in the democratic process and voting. Uh, if, if in this particular instance the Orthodox community in the town of Ramapo uh, is organized and they're politically motivated and they, they, they're able to get a high turnout on Election Day, good for them. So what you're uh, saying is there's no turning back from here. This is really the way it is and that there's just, you know, that's it. I mean, there's... Well, I, I, think, I think that there are ways to, to tone down the rhetoric. I think a lot of... Um, a lot of what's happened is that there's been this divide uh, that's grown larger and larger because of all the rhetoric and because of all the, uh, all the uh, accusations, let's call them, that, that are flying back and forth. I think that, I think that uh, beginning, in a, beginning a dialogue and engaging in a, a civil conversation between the various personalities and the various groups involved uh, does have the potential to go a long way. I think that um, if the critics uh, were, uh, for example, a lot of, a lot of the... Uh, a lot of the focus is on the litigation um, that, the, that, that has been brought by various parents and whatnot against the school board members. I mean, just to put that in perspective, uh, in, the school, in the East Ramapo School District's budget, um, you know, there's a line item in that budget uh, for legal fees um, of about $2.3 million. And that's an increase of $1.7 million over last year. And, and that, that increase, and that's a considerable, considerable amount of money, that's directly attributable to the fact that the district has been forced to defend uh, various administrators and school board members from some of the uh, litigation that has been brought. I think that if, you know, we need, people need to dispense with the litigation and get back to focusing on the business of education. Um, I think people really ought to realize that there should ideally be uh, more collaboration between the various groups and, and a concerted effort to explore how the sharing of educational resources can help everyone. Um, I know that, um, you know, a number of, of, of the state legislators have put the forth uh, various proposals. I know Assemblyman Zabrowski is going to be on your show shortly. Um, both he and Senator Carlucci uh, have taken interest in, in what's going on and have come forth with various ideas and plans uh, intended to try and uh, alleviate the situation. Uh, I think, you know, one of the things I think that really needs to be done is uh, some adjustment of the school aid formula. Um, I think when people come to the realization that uh, the distribution of state education funding can't be based on a cookie-cutter approach, I think all of a sudden that might be a breakthrough. Uh, East Ramapo is, is a unique district. It's got very unique needs, and it would undoubtedly benefit from a, a school aid formula that recognized its uniqueness and took, into cons and took that into consideration well, what, when we're doling out state talk, dollars. Uh, Aaron, talk. We're here with Aaron Trudler from uh, Port Revere Public Relations. And Aaron, just tell us for a second, what do you mean by changing the school aid formula? How does the school aid formula disadvantage East Ramapo? I think a lot of a lot of uh, the controversy is centering on the fact that uh, Pete, there's a perception that the school board is, um, you know, utilizing resources um, that should be quote unquote for public school students and and using them to benefit quote unquote private school students. And uh, you know, obviously, as we all know, there are um, there are you know a, per, a kid may be in yeshiva, but that kid is entitled to certain state dollars for various mandated services and whatnot. Uh, I, I don't think that. Um, because of its unique makeup with the minority, you know, the, the, the overwhelmingly minority district and the unique nature of the fact, you know, that, that it's basically two to one 
ratio of, you know, kids in private schools versus public schools. Like you said, I mean, it, it's one of only several in the state in, that has that situation. I think that um, reassessing how these state dollars are given to a district of this kind is critical. I think if people uh, examine the fact that there are unique needs in this district and they, they address those needs in a, in a, in a different way, it could, it could be uh, the answer to this whole problem. Uh, it, for example, people but, are... But Aaron, let me, let me interrupt you for a second, uh, because I, th- I think we're kind of not getting to the heart of the problem. And uh, it is when you have, when suburban school districts, as opposed to, let's say, city school districts that, are, that, that might be fine, well, I, as opposed to New York City, I guess, suburban school districts, or most school districts, are financed by property taxes, and you're in a, in, a, in a specific area, and it's kind of on this premise that most people out there want to support public education. But if you have a situation where most people don't want to support public education, I mean, if they just don't care that much about public education, they don't care about much about supporting public schools to a very high level. They don't really care about physics and chemistry and offering six or ten languages, as right. some out there. They don't care about these extras or extracurricular sports and activities. So you can't force them to support it, right? I, I think, and, and that's where we get into this issue. And the, the paradigm itself just doesn't work. No, I agree with you. I think there needs to be a... a, a... Uh, a total restructuring of the way things are done and how and how the money is doled out and and, and where the resources are allocated to. Um, I think uh, look, I think a lot of it is attributable also to the fact that because of um, uh, you know the fact that that there are members of the public that constantly denigrate the Orthodox board members and have made it into a an us versus them sort of situation. You know, a lot of the the actual facts on the ground and the truth uh, you know somehow disappear and don't get taken notice of. So, for example. You know, East Ramapo in its uh, latest budget um, that, that was just passed, it took a, the district and the board members in particular took a lot of heat for uh, some some teacher layoffs um, and and you know 52 or so uh, teachers in various positions are going to be uh, you know are going to be cut out. Now, law, you know, uh, Ramapo Central School District, which is a neighboring school district, just passed their budget last night, and they're proposing. Uh, cutting about 60 full-time teaching positions, more more than East Ramapo and various other programs as well. Um, I think that when East Ramapo does it, it's it's seen as a vendetta by the Orthodox school board members against the public school community, which I think is is ludicrous. But when Ramapo Central does it out of economic necessity and you know because of the troubling and difficult economic times that we face, no one says anything. So I think a lot of this has to do with the misperception that's out there. Um, you know, the fact that people are focusing on fighting and not focusing on education, uh, I think toning down the rhetoric, beginning a dialogue, and really starting to work with one another can actually go a long way here. So in fairness, we actually invited Benjamin Wallace-Wells, who from New York Magazine, onto the show, and he is actually away this week, uh, I've been told. So just to get into that article for a second, as a public relations person, Aaron, how, how would you characterize it? Uh, mischaracterization, slander, some truth, truth, truthiness? I think it's a gross mis- mischaracter- mischaracterization of the, uh, of the situation. And I think it, unfutu- it unfortunately fuels that fire uh, that's been burning there. Um, well, give us, some, give us some perspective on that. When I, I think 
Look, I think the I think the article and and it was more than just an article. I mean, it was a very extensive piece on not just the school district itself, but but trying to get a, a handle on Orthodox life, which is which is difficult for anyone uh, who's not from that community. Uh, the fact the fact that uh, they're citing um, uh, certain situations where you know students are getting caught up in the mix, and rather than focusing on their schoolwork, they're you know they're they're uh, more focused on the uh, you know the squabble with the school board. That's you know that's that's unacceptable. I, I think that that the way they the way they paint the Orthodox community, the way they st- the way the author started the article with a uh, with a story about a uh, situation that that purportedly happened in the village of New Square many many years ago. That uh, I think he paints a picture for the reader uh, that's not entirely accurate. Um, to his to the author's credit, yeah, he does go out of his way to discuss some of the positive attributes of the Orthodox community. And he talked about how he visited uh, Tom Shabbos and, and you know, various community members were, uh, were involved in that act of chesed and kindness. That's, that's what the Orthodox community is all about, uh, this, this idea of community and togetherness and, and, and the idea that you know, you know that you can rely on your neighbor and your neighbor can rely on you. That's what makes the Orthodox community so beautiful and so special. And to take that and, and to try and paint something that special uh, in an article of this nature, and, 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 and I think it's just absolutely atrocious. I just think it's unfair. It's a mischaracterization. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, it just feeds right into the perception out there that um, it's an us versus them sort of situation. So is there, there certainly is an insular nature to the Orthodox community. I mean, there's no question we've had issues, and I have many people that I'm, you know, uh, friendly with in, in New Square and and Kaser and Muncie, and uh, I should point out, actually, that my father grew up in Muncie, and he uh, is a graduate of Spring Valley High School. Uh, in, right? full, in full disclosure, I think it was a different time. I'm not sure. Uh, but I would imagine so. I, exactly. And he's a graduate of Spring Valley High School, so I have some legacy interest in the district. But, you know, I've, I, I certainly am aware of some of the unique attributes of Hasidic villages and the fact that, you know, New Square has had issues with the fire department, for example, no longer wanted to cover them. They tried to you know, kick them out and uh, the, you know, and the like. But so politically, it can be very difficult for, you know, for politicians to engage, especially if you're not that familiar, to engage these communities and try and, you know, tr- try and push them in a direction that they may not may not be interested in going. Uh, yeah, that's an excellent point, Michael. And um, because inherently these, some of these communities are somewhat insular, um, but uh, like we were talking about before, the demographics and the numbers are what they are. So uh, the fact that they're growing at the rate at which they're growing, you know, does essentially, you know, bring them into the conversation, into the political conversation. Um, and, you know, for example, there are uh, Orthodox, aside from the school board, you know, the town of Ramapo has has two. Uh, members of its town board that are that are orthodox. You have a county legislator who's orthodox. You have people from that community getting intimately involved in public life and civic duty, um, and and you know I think that's a wonderful thing. To the other elected officials who are not necessarily from that community, uh, yet look, everybody's different, and some of the elected officials approach us with an open mind, and they they make a concerted effort to to learn about the community and. And to get a you know develop an understanding of their needs and concerns and goals, 
And that's a beautiful thing. On the flip side, you have elected officials, unfortunately, who uh, see that community and they turn the other way for whatever reason, and they don't make that effort to, to get to know them and to develop any sort of relationship. And, uh, you know, I, I think that anybody who's representing um, a constituency of any kind, of any size, it's really uh, incumbent upon them to, to make that effort and to try and get to know their constituents. In this case, obviously, there's this large Orthodox, uh, you know, and Hasidic population, and the elected officials in the area, um, and quite frankly, other community activists and interested parties really should uh, make the effort um, to, to get to know them and to get to understand them better. And, and I think by doing that, you know, a lot, of, a lot of what we read about in the papers and a lot of, you know, what we hear about in the news with regard to some of these com- communities, uh, you know, would disappear. I think, I think a, lot of the, a lot of the issues that are out there, I think, is attributable to a lack of understanding. And that's unfortunate. Okay, well, we were supposed to have Assemblyman Ken Zabrowski on. I know he had mentioned that he was going to be at an event, was going to call in around 6.30, and hopefully he still will. But uh, since we have you for a couple more seconds, Aaron, you have a new column in the Bergen Jewish Link. Is that correct? correct? I do. Yeah, okay. The, uh, Bergen County Jewish Link is Congratulations. a... Congratulations. Um, thank you very much. I appreciate it. It's, uh, it's actually a very exciting... Uh, an exciting endeavor. It's a, uh, a new community newspaper that uh, was just started uh, several months ago uh, by uh, Moshe Kindlerer, who, uh, who I believe you know well and who's a, uh, an exceptional writer and, and really has his finger on the pulse of the Jewish community, uh, along with Mendy Schwartz, uh, who's a councilman in the, ta- in the township of Teaneck. And what they basically uh, sought to do was to create um, a means by, by which the Orthodox community in Bergen County could get a you know their fill of news and 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 insight on all issues related to that community outside of listening to the show of course well of course that goes without saying uh, and and my column uh, which is called political ponderings uh, is just that um, there there's a lot of uh, a lot of ways where members of the Orthodox community can become more involved in civic affairs and politics and government and uh, what I endeavor to do in the column is really just to you know, alert people of the various opportunities and possibilities that are out there and to uh, to encourage them to become more involved. Well, that's great. So what are the – give me two hot-button issues right now in TNEC, and then we're going we're gonna to move on to our next segment. Well, uh, what, what my last column focused uh, – it was entitled School Choice, the Government, and You. And obviously that's not a, an issue that's specific to TNEC. Or yeah, I can imagine the people in East Ramapo might be interested in that. Exactly right. And, and I think, you know, you have, um, I think, a renewed uh, interest in, in, the, in the area of, of school choice and trying to seek um, aid and, and relief for uh, tuition-paying parents. And, you know, the Orthodox Union's Institute for Public Affairs is, has become very, very active um, both in New York and New Jersey, you know, under the leadership of Maury Litwack and Jeff Lab and Josh Przanski, respectively. Um, a good Israel, a good Israel, a good Israel is also obviously uh, has always been involved. And I think that because of these organizations taking a a, a, uh, a renewed focus on this issue, I think more and more people who, who you know in the past may have just complained about the cost of tuition, but never really knew how to how to address it are now faced with the opportunity to become educated about how they, how they could become involved, how they can uh, help solve the problem, and I, I think that's just a wonderful thing. Well, congratulations on that, and Thank you. we'll uh, certainly get you back to talk about more Jersey politics. I know we're a little New York-focused this week, so uh, I apologize for being so provincial. 
But uh, Aaron Trudler, Paul Revere Public Relations, uh, thank you for joining us here on Spin Class. Michael, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. All the best. We have Spin Class, sponsored by Season Supermarkets, and we are moving on to our next segment. We're going to move back to New York uh, after that brief uh, sojourn in New Jersey, and we have blogger Jacob Cornblue with us. And uh, Jacob is has a blog, New York NY Mayor blogspot.com. Did I get that right, Jacob? Yes, you did, Michael. It's great to be on. So you are covering pretty much all aspects of the mayor's race from a Jewish perspective or even non-Jewish perspective, uh, all perspectives, I should say. You're also covering the 48th council district race. So tell me why right now the 40th council district in southern Brooklyn deserves its own coverage from an esteemed blogger like yourself. Well, uh, you know, um, any blogger that wants to gain traction has to focus on the races which make uh, the most noise. And um, unfortunately, uh, we will be having a mayoral race, but it will be focused more on the general public. Uh, in in Brooklyn, we don't have this year in a competitive race in Borough Park, uh, um, if you may. Um, Councilman Greenfield is running unopposed, so... There's nothing really... Well, nobody's petitioned yet, right? So we don't really know if he's going to be unopposed, do we? Um, as of now, he has the conservative line regardless. Ah, okay, okay. So I so, see. I mean, uh, if a, Republic, a Republican most probably won't run against him unless he's primaried in a Democratic primary, <laughs> um, you know, we, we obviously know the outcome of that um, primary. Uh, the 48th district is, is kind of exciting because uh, you have... Three or four Russians running in a district that has uh, around 60% or more uh, Russian voters. That's not necessarily only in the primary. However, you have one, as of now, one announced candidate, an uh, Orthodox candidate running. If the Russians split their vote, he might come out victorious. However, going on to the general election, if he's faced with a Republican Russian candidate, uh, most probably David Sorobin, he's likely to lose. So it will be an interesting primary to look out for, and it will be interesting if the Orthodox Jew comes out victorious, how he will best in the general election. Very interesting. So let's just get a little more general right now. You're talking, we're talking about the mayor's race and we'll, we'll focus on the 40th council district at a, at a future, at a future time and hopefully get some of the candidates on. I think that it's going to be a very interesting race. And I think that's an interesting perspective. We'll divide the Russian vote. And so an Orthodox person can sneak in there, which is a kind of different than we've seen in the past of kind of divide the vote. So the Orthodox vote or divide the, you know, the one ethnicity, one ethnicity's vote so that Somebody else can sneak in there, but in this case, they're all Jewish. But uh, I also want to open up the phone lines, 212-529-4620, 212-529-4620. Anybody want to call in, talk about uh, politics and all we've mentioned so far? So, Jacob, tell us uh, what's going on in the mayor's race. Anthony Weiner, is he upsetting the apple cart here, his presence, potential presence, looming over the race? He's definitely uh, uh, biting the apple. He's definitely... Uh, creating some of, uh, you know, some of the candidates are to be nervous of his entry. He's definitely running. There's no question about it. Uh, some some uh, uh, say that his current attitude, uh, the one-on-one uh, hand-picked interviews in which he seems to be sorry and apologize 50 times for his misconduct, 
uh, is not the Anthony Weiner uh, his face is actually anticipating for. So the Anthony Weiner we know from Congress two or three years ago, um, he has uh, enthused-based, he can bring out voters. He, if he manages to basically hold uh, Christine Quinn below 30 percent, uh, all the candidates split the vote around 15 percent, and he eats out another additional percent by a good get-out-the-vote effort or a, you know, uh, a sympathy vote. If he manages to do that, he goes head-to-head against Christine Quinn in a runoff, and in a runoff will be an interesting situation to look uh, whether all the candidates will unite with Anthony Weiner against Christine Quinn, or will they unite with Christine Quinn knowing she's going to win and another eight years of Christine Quinn, while Anthony Weiner could lose to either Joe Loder and or John Katzmatidis. And in another four years, there's another opportunity, an opening for either of the candidates. Talk about Jewish outreach for a second. You've been following the Jewish outreach from each of the candidates uh, quite a bit on your blog and posting some interesting stuff. Talk about the Jewish outreach of the candidates. What are they doing? What are they not doing? What are they doing smart? What smart things are they doing and what not so smart things are they doing? I I would say uh, Christine Quinn is, we know, uh, as a matter of fact, she is planning to do some outreach within the Orthodox Jewish community. I mean, the overall Jewish community, uh, she is doing right now in the polls. If you if you measure uh, the race with Anthony Weiner, she splits the vote. She gets 22 percent. Anthony Weiner gets 21 percent. However, with Anthony Weiner out of the race, she gets around 25, 27 percent of the overall Jewish vote. However, when you talk about Orthodox Jewish vote, uh, Bill de Blasio and Bill Thompson are currently doing, um, leading the pack. Uh, Christine Quinn hopes for a 10% uh, chunk of that vote, enough to split the vote so it won't help either of the candidates, uh, you know, in, 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 in inching up uh, towards a runoff. Um, Bill Thompson seems to be sleeping. I've covered Sleeping. a lot of Guy, the, the events. New, wait, Jacob, hold on. Sleeping. The New York Times profiled Bill Thompson and his relationship with the Jewish community and said that he has pretty much the best relationship with the Brooklyn Jewish community of any candidate. So what do you mean he's sleeping? He might uh, have a good relationship with the rank and file. But as you know, Michael, uh, these times are different. Uh, voters are actually tuning in. Voters are actually independently voicing their opinion. And when you don't hear from a candidate, when the candidate is never seen at Jewish events because he's, of course, if he's profiled that he has already the relationship with the Jewish community, it's sort of taking every vote for granted. While Bill de Blasio, John Lou, I think, won't miss any event if it's 20 people in the room up to 5,000 people. So they're basically reaching out. We know they're not spending money yet because it's still too early. Uh, any, any money is spent towards hiring the best uh, campaign managers or spokespeople or, or fighting the other candidates. So uh, uh, the money is not being uh, driven into the race right now um, other than John Katsimatidis that's planned. 
a, a totally different plan. He's he's working on two fronts. He's working on winning the the GP primary, which we don't know if he'll be successful. And he's already looking forward to winning right. the general, uh, reaching out to potential uh, voters. So, Jacob, we have a caller on the line. Uh, Moshe from Brooklyn is telling me that Eric Salgado should be the candidate of the Jewish community. Moshe? Michael, good afternoon. How are you? I'm good. Okay, so Eric Salgado. Tell us why Eric Salgado is the man of the hour. Okay, the reason why Eric Salgado is, here's what I believe is happening right now. The chances of Chris Quinn being the next mayor is very big. And the second that they run her off, whether it's going to be Bill de Blasio or Bill Thompson, is still up in the air, although I believe that Bill Thompson is going to be ahead of Bill de Blasio at the end. The Jewish community's vote in bringing in the second person in, in the runoff or winning the runoff is going to be a big deal. A guy like, a guy like Eric Salgado that could garnish 60 to 70 percent of the Hispanic vote, that will be a big chunk. And if he could create a coalition between Orthodox Jews and some conservative Democrats together, if they would go out and they would make a deal with the person in the runoff, saying the only way we will support you is by giving us this and this, there is a big chance that he will be able to swing who will win the runoff. So why go out now, all these people that are together with Bill de Blasio, which the chances that he should become mayor is slim, or going out with Bill Thompson, and we don't know he somehow his whole campaign is sleeping, or coming out, even though they would support Chris Quinn, but they will not come out in public and do that because of the situation of her personal lifestyle. If they would all go out with Eric Salgado and they will create that he should have a nice percentage of the voters and it's going to come down to the runoff that he will be able to make a deal and bring real numbers. What is the Orthodox Jewish community in New York compared to the Hispanic community? If a guy like this could bring real numbers to a okay. campaign... Okay, well, Moshe, we, under, we understand the strategy, uh, and thank you very much for the call. Jacob, what do you make of that strategy? It's kind of a, uh, an unknown I mean, strategy it, 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 for, for, for winning a race. It's not a bubble. He's living in a dreamland. I mean, come on, El Sagat is not even being polled yet right now. He, he had his debut uh, 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 presence on TV last night, and the only... The only um, line from that debate everybody knows of is him suggesting that Rudy Giuliani would serve as police commissioner under his administration. I mean, hey, I'm sure Rudy wants that job. So, uh, okay, look, uh, Jacob, I, I, I tend to agree with you on that one. Uh, let's take another Let's take another voice here. We have Yossi, I believe Yossi Gestentner from uh, Rockland County on there, is, or it's just Yossi from Rockland County. Yossi, yeah, yeah, you there? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How many from Rockland do you think are listening now to your show? Tell me. How you doing, guys? Hi, Yossi. Tell us, uh, uh, what's listen, your question? Uh, what's things. your comment? Regarding uh, New York City, Bill Thompson versus Bill de Blasio, I personally have a preference uh, uh, for uh, Bill Thompson. But uh, if uh, you are a person who is in the news, you certainly took note that the Bill de Blasio campaign is on their game, not necessarily for the Jewish community, 
But in general, anytime there's a news story out there, they, they, he, he's out with a statement with a press release. And, it, and if you're not on, 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 on his official list, you're going to get an extra email from his, uh, his guys working um, in the, in, on his campaign. And this is something which I don't think uh, you see in any other uh, mayoral campaign. It doesn't mean uh, anything compared okay, to you know, who's going to win. Yossi, give us point number two because I want to get to a number of callers we have on hold. Sure, yeah. Point number two regarding uh, uh, East Ramapo. You know, it's stupid to suggest that the Hasidic community here in, in Rockland huh? would not care okay. for the education of the public school children. Okay. The, the, these, uh, these children are our neighbors. Do you really want that our neighbors should not have a good education? They should join gangs and, and uh, rob people on the street? Are you kidding me? It, it's sick to say, that, and uh, stupid to say, I'm not saying this is your suggestion, but this is what uh, some uh, detractors are out there arguing, yeah, the Jewish community doesn't care about public school. Yeah, you know, in our book, it doesn't need to be a public school at a charge of $22,000 a year. You can do it in a private school for half that amount. So, but, but to suggest that we don't care for seven, eight, nine thousand 9,000 students in the public school system, are we just careless? We want them to be out there joining the gangs, being on drugs. It's a stupid suggestion. Again, we, we disagree with the tactics, with the, with the price paid, with, with the tenure of teachers, with the, with the fat cat contracts. Uh, this is our problem, not, not, not necessarily whether a, a child is educated in the public school versus the private school. Yossi, it's an excellent point, and I think that, that more that, that's, you, you really hit the nail on the head. I think what I said earlier, and I know you weren't saying specific to me, but I, I want to be sensitive to it, is I don't know that they needed – that they need to offer, or, or I'm sorry, people might say, I don't think they need to offer 11 languages. I'm, I'm obviously making numbers up. You know, maybe just offer Spanish and French as opposed to, uh, you know, uh, uh, I, whatever. I, I don't know. Uh, okay. <laughs> Mandarin, uh, you know, or something like that, or Finnish. Uh, let's not offer all those languages. So, uh, or, you know, let's not, let's not have 30 sports teams. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll cut it down to just basketball and football. But, Yossi, thank you very much for the comments. We're going to move to Shalom. Shalom, are you there? Yeah, hello? Shalom, what's your comment? Question. Hi, okay, well, my name is not Shalom. It's Shimon Gifford, but anyway. Oh, I apologize. Shimon, how are you? Good, no, Baruch Hashem. Thanks nice for calling in. Um, what, I, what I'm finding is speaking to uh, a couple hundred people, and I'm not referring to uh, just from people, but getting a feel. Uh, people are not as excited right now, for whatever reason, about Bill Thompson, which is very strange. For months, everyone was saying Thompson, Thompson, Thompson. Well, people are not excited about Quinn either, which is very interesting to me also. I thought, like, everyone would be, like, really, um, you know, excited about her uh, candidacy. Uh, a lot of people uh, are leaning towards, it seems like, Bill de Blasio. It's like, to me, he's coming out of nowhere. It's just very strange how it's, you know, it keeps on going back and forth. I don't know if it's the thing that they're uh, saying on a weekly basis, but that's really what, what I'm finding right now. So, uh, Well, I, look, there's no question Bill de Blasio has a good history in the Jewish community. He's been on the show and uh, certainly is, is an impressive uh, guy. I think the one thing that, you know, and he's always he's always been very strong on constituent service, I have to say yeah. that. But I, I want to, you know, the one thing I think, surprising about the Bill de Blasio candidacy right now is that you would have thought that he would be the candidate of the unions and he isn't getting that union support and it's not going in his direction and he certainly would have expected the Working Families Party 
endorsement, and I don't think it's happening either. So that's just that's all I that's all I would say right now on that. Not to knock him, but that's that's my observation. There's one. There's another observation that I have. Is anyone okay? That, make it quickly. We're running. We're almost out of time. Anyone that the public feels that is associated with like uh, what we call Bloombergenized is not going to get the votes of of a lot of people, especially the Jewish community. Well, and people are just very fed up with Bloomberg. So, like, you know, what I hear on the street is like, why would I vote for another person that would have the policies of Bloomberg? So, does that work against Chris Quinn, John Katsimatidis, think, yeah, or I, Joe Loda, or all the above? No, I think it works against Quinn big time. Just against Quinn. Nothing okay. against her. It's just, Shimon, thank, thank you very much for the comment. Uh, Shimon, uh, Duke, do we have anybody else on the uh, waiting on hold? Okay, good. We're going to go to the closing statement. Jacob Corbleu, thank you very much for joining us here on Spin Class, and we uh, always keen insight, and perhaps we'll uh, tackle some other issues in the coming weeks that you've written about recently. But uh, Always a pleasure to be with you, Michael. Thank you very much, Jacob. So I w- want to just get to two closing statements. Number one is the one that I wrote that I read about John Liu went to meet with a bunch of Jewish newspapers, and we mentioned John Liu running for mayor on the Democratic line. And he basically said, well, I, I'm, I'm not in favor of school choice. I'm not in favor of tax credits because they take money. They siphon money from – this is what I read. That, that was how it was reported. They siphon money from the public schools. Now, I don't see how a tax credit can siphon money from the public schools. They might actually reduce the amount people are paying in taxes, but they don't actually take any money away. And the amazing thing is that – John Liu would, most politicians would say, okay, let me avoid the issue a little bit. Let me, you know, cater. Let me at least think that I can embrace the community a little bit. But no, he was straight out, according to what I read, straight out in your face about it. So hopefully we'll get somebody, we'll get John Liu on the, on the program in the coming weeks and we can talk about that. But I got to tell you, tax credits are certainly proven to be legal and they work and they're very good for us. And the last thing is Charlie Rangel out there has now sued the House of Representatives, the Ethics Committee, the Speaker of the House, and others over his censure. And if you don't recall, it was a failure to pay taxes. It was all kinds of different things, a misuse of his office. Charlie Rangel was in a whole bunch of trouble. He didn't. He, he walked out of his own hearing and didn't really even defend himself to a large degree. And now he wants to sue the House of Representatives in court to have it overturned. And uh, I have to say, you know, Perhaps I, I don't think Charlie Rangel's entire legacy should be about uh, this scandal, but there's no question. Just, you know, you do the crime, accept the punishment. And, uh, you know, he certainly didn't go to jail for not paying his taxes. He was able to correct everything. Most people might be in a lot more trouble than he was. And I think that, uh, you know, you you accept it and move on. And I think Charlie Rangel can be known for a lot of good things out there. But uh, I don't think this lawsuit is at all productive for us. This is Spin Class, sponsored by Season Supermarkets at a new time, 6 to 7. Stay tuned for the Thursday night extravaganza hosted by ZK. Speak to you next week.